Hello and welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary podcast. This is a podcast that is going to be sharing the weekly teachings from the Oceanside Sanctuary. Uh, Most of the time, our pastor Jason Coker is going to be preaching, and that is what this sermon is today. Today is the first sermon in a brand new sermon series we've started here called Misunderstanding Jesus. And in this series, Jason is exploring and revisiting the odd, abused, and ignored sayings of Christ. And we're really excited to be launching this series. And today, the first message is titled, Blessed. And Jason's going to take us through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and unpack some of the ways that we have not really uh, fully seen uh, Jesus' teachings um, displayed in the world today. And so we hope that you would enjoy this. Um, This is really a response to a lot of our friends online, um, even some of our friends here at the church, uh, if they can't make it every week. Uh, This is a response to that, to um, be intentional about putting each weekly episode up. uh, That's our sermon series. Uh, In addition, we are going to be recording some classes that we have coming up. So be on the lookout for that in the feed as well. Um, But we're really excited to launch this new sermon series. Uh, You can connect with us online, Oceanside Sanctuary, on Instagram and Facebook. And we'd love to connect with you there. So I hope you enjoy this new message for this new sermon series from Jason Coker. So today we're going to actually start a new sermon series. We've been uh, doing a sermon series uh, out of the lectionary called Ordinary Faith. We wrapped that up last week. And this week we're starting a new series that I'm calling Misunderstanding Jesus because uh, you probably know this if you know me, but I tend to think we misunderstand Jesus a lot. That, that we read Jesus's words and sort of inject our own assumptions or beliefs or ideas into those or Worse yet, we take the things that people like me have taught you and inject those into the words of Christ. And one of the problems that creates is as we're living out our faith, as we're attempting to follow Jesus, those misunderstandings can become real stumbling blocks to us so that it actually creates a a kind of self-defeating cycle where you're constantly robbed of the opportunity to really live into what it means to be a follower of Christ because we just misunderstand what Jesus was talking about uh, very often. And so I'm not sure how long this series is going to be. It's one of those open-ended things. I'm expecting it will be about seven or eight weeks. Um, And I only know what two of the topics are going to be, and one of those is today, the Beatitudes, because I think the Beatitudes are essentially the most misunderstood teaching that Jesus brought. Uh, But I'm actually looking for your suggestions for the other topics that we'll be tackling during this particular series. So I want to invite you uh, to express your ideas to me in a couple of ways. Number one, uh, you can just grab like one of those visitor cards that you see in the back of the pews, pull it out and scratch on the back of it with a pen or a pencil, uh, some saying or teaching or verse that you have struggled with. Like you don't understand why Jesus said that or why Jesus said it that way, or what that could possibly mean, or maybe it's something that's always troubled you. I think one of the realities of being Christians is that Jesus is the most sacred expression of Christianity to us, and that's right. We are Christians. We're supposed to be like Christ. And so oftentimes we blind ourselves to the sayings of Christ that were really difficult or really problematic. 
And so I just want to invite you to be really honest with yourself about what some of the things Jesus might have said that you really struggle with. So you can write that on a visitor's card and you can pop it in the offering box at the back of the sanctuary there, or you could send an email to the church or you could go on the church Facebook page and you'll find a a posting for this particular sermon series, Misunderstanding Jesus, and you can add a comment, hey, what about this thing that Jesus said? And what I'll do is I'll take those suggestions and we'll build a sermon series around it so that we are addressing some of the issues that you find most confusing or difficult or odd or whatever it might be. Today I want to jump right into the Beatitudes, which is Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there to Matthew chapter 5. Or do we have an opportunity to put these up on the screen, this passage? Yeah? No, 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 it's okay. It's fine. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you, or there should be. It's Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. And what I want to do is read through this, then we're going to talk a little bit about what Beatitudes are, and then we're going to talk about what uh, I think Jesus is trying to get across to us here. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to speak and he taught them. Now, I just want to pause there for a moment just to sort of set the scene. Jesus has just been at the beginning of his ministry out uh, serving the poor, uh, healing people who are sick, uh, calling people to follow him. He's calling the disciples to follow him. And at this point, he's gathered a fairly sizable crowd. So he finds a, a hill or a kind of mountainside and he goes up on that hill so that he's up above the crowd, sort of like, you know, if I climb these steps so that He can see farther and he can speak farther and he begins to teach this crowd of people. And he jumps right in with what we call the Beatitudes. He says this, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this is the beginning, of course, of the Sermon on the Mount, and for those of you who may not know, the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' most famous teaching. So as you go through uh, the Gospels, and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7, or the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's version of this same teaching, everybody agrees that this is really the core of Jesus' teaching. In fact, I often say, if if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, uh, it's good for you, of course, to study the Bible. But within the Bible, there are more central things to Christians and Within that, you could say that the Gospels are really central to who we are and what we think and what it is that we're trying to live out. 
And within those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell about the life and the story of Jesus, within those four testaments of Jesus, there is the Sermon on the Mount, which is really the core of what Jesus taught everywhere he went. And the Beatitudes are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So this sort of extended sermon that Jesus gave that covers Matthew 5, 6, and 7 begins with this list of the Beatitudes. We call it the Beatitudes because it's sort of Latin for the blessed bees, right? Because in, in the, the Latin Vulgate version of this, really it's not just blessed are those who, but blessed be is kind of the phrase, and from that we get the word beatitude. So Jesus seems to be listing or sort of running off a list of the people who are blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? And what's particularly difficult about this list is it doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This doesn't sound like a particularly appealing list to be found on. In fact, if you were to ask anybody during Jesus' time, or for that matter, anybody during our time, would you please make a list of all the people who are blessed, the people who are really well off, the people who are genuinely happy, your list would probably not include these folks. You probably wouldn't be like, well, you know, let's see, huh, those who are poor or poor in spirit, they're doing pretty well. You wouldn't say, well, you know, those who are mourning and crying and weeping, those are the folks who are, are really living out their lives. This is not the sort of list that you would come up with. And this is essentially what makes this so misunderstood, is that we look at this list of people who are supposedly blessed or well-off or truly happy, and for the most part, we wouldn't want to be on this list. Now, some of it sounds okay, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We'd all like to believe that we're pure in heart. So maybe like, Maybe that's where I am on this list, pure in heart. And the people who know me are like, no, that's not where you are on this list. <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers. That sounds pretty good. I'd like to be a peacemaker. Maybe, maybe I could count myself as being on that part of the list. But the truth is, I'm not much of a peacemaker either. When it comes down to it, I generally like to stir things up. And if you utter... a uh, you know, a cranky word in my direction, I generally have a pretty good comeback. Might be sarcastic. No, I, I don't really think I'm on this list anywhere. And the truth is, even, even uh, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Uh, nobody really wants to be merciful. What we want is to get what we deserve. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. If there ever was a group of people on the planet who are more cursed, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because to be in this world and to be hungry for righteousness is to be forever unsatisfied. Because when you see the way that things ought to be, you realize It'll probably never be that way, at least in your lifetime. And so this really seems to be more like a, a list of 
people who are cursed, not necessarily a list of people who are blessed. I think it's helpful to know that Beatitudes are not something that Jesus invented. Beatitudes exist really as a kind of literary genre, and we find this in two sort of categories. The first category is Beatitudes are often a way for people to talk about wisdom. So think of it this way. You know, the great question of humanity really is, who is blessed? For the Greek philosophers, that question was asked this way. Who is really good? Who is truly living a good life? In the United States of America, when we talk about having the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we're really in that tradition. We want to live the best life we possibly can in response to the question, what does it mean to really live a good life? In America, we have decided that living a really good life means living at least a financially stable and prosperous life, a healthy life where we have the opportunity to like, you know, buy a home and live the American dream. That's what it means to live a good life if you're an American. Throughout history, this has been the question. What does it really mean to live well? And in the Jewish tradition, the answer to that often took the form of beatitudes. Who is it that is really blessed? If you have a Catholic Bible, like I do, you might have some books in here that aren't typically included in the Protestant Bible, like Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, which is a writing of wisdom sayings written by a Jewish man named Ben Sirach back in the second century before Christ. It's basically sort of an expanded version of Proverbs. Ben Sirach sat down and wrote down what he thought wisdom was for good living And and there's a really great example of Beatitudes in here, of the kind of wisdom Beatitude that I'm talking about. It's Sirach chapter 25, verses 7, 8, and 9. I'm just going to read it to you. Just listen. Listen for it, because I think this is hilarious. You might not. But listen for what Ben Sirach thought was a really good life. Verse 7. He says, he, he writes this, of course, very poetically in the Jewish poetic tradition. He says, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed. Nine people, he means. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth which my tongue would proclaim. First, a man who can rejoice in his children. Wouldn't you consider that blessed? If you had, like, healthy, happy, decent children? Yeah, I feel blessed. I have healthy, happy, decent children. A man who can rejoice in his children, and a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. I mean, let's be honest, that sounds pretty good, right? He goes on. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife. Oh, that's a little sexist, but okay. And the one who does not plow with an ox and an ass together, this is, of course, just a reference to like hardship and work and labor and conflict, right? Most of us wouldn't know that because we're not out plowing fields every day. 
Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue. Well, that's true. How many times have you been in a conversation and then just something like came out and you were like, wait. Usually after a beer or two. Happy is the one who has not served an inferior. <laughs> Don't tell me that you have not been at work and been like, that dude who's my boss is an idiot. <laughs> Alex never said that. <laughs> Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. It's happy and it's good to feel like you've been heard, isn't it? How great is the one who finds wisdom? That's a really common use of beatitudes, like a, a list of those who are genuinely well off. And the point of this, of course, is you read that and you're like, oh, that's what a good life is like. And then you do your best to somehow like wrangle your life in that direction. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not bad at all. It's actually really helpful to read a list of things that are wise about life and say to yourself, okay, well, what am I missing? And how can I put myself in a situation to be a little bit better off? Wisdom is really helpful in that regard. And oftentimes that's how we read Jesus's Beatitudes. And so we read Jesus's Beatitudes sometimes as sort of a as a list of spiritual virtues that we have to attain in order to be blessed by God. That's what it sounds like. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are pure of heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. And so then we say to ourselves, well, how do I become poor in spirit? And there are teachings throughout the history of Christianity that take that approach in fact, there are those who would even take that approach and say that the Beatitudes are sort of a ladder to heaven. Like you start with becoming really humble and contrite in heart. And then the next step is to become like a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and so on, right? Well, mourning becomes before that, actually. But there's a kind of logical sense to that, right? Because don't we all know that in order to be sort of spiritually mature or to grow spiritually, that humility is somewhere in there? And so it makes sense to say, well, to be poor in spirit means to be humble, to be contrite. And there are passages that talk about exactly that. And if you're humble and contrite and you realize how desperately in need you are, probably weeping is next. And then there's like a turn of your heart towards a hunger, towards, you know, righteousness. And there's a long tradition of teaching the Beatitudes this way. The problem with that approach to the Beatitudes is it totally ignores the other way that the Beatitudes have been historically used. And it completely ignores what Jesus is actually doing in that moment. And so the other way that the Beatitudes have been historically used that sort of literary genre is by the prophets. Now, the prophetic tradition is different than a wisdom tradition. A wisdom tradition says, here's how you live a decent life. It's sort of practical advice. It's good advice. We should all take it and do what you know, needs to be done in order to live decently. But the prophetic tradition is totally different. Prophets don't come to tell you how to have your best life now. Prophets come to tell you that you've screwed it all up. 
especially if you are a person in power. The prophets come to overturn the power structures of this world because the powerful in this world have ruined everything for the rest of us. And so a good example of that is Isaiah chapter 30, and I'm just going to jump into verse 18. So listen here for these prophetic words and how there's a kind of surprising twist at the end that takes on the form of a beatitude. It says this, this is Isaiah the prophet speaking, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. This is the prophet speaking to those in power in Israel. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. The Lord is not being gracious to you now. The Lord is waiting to be gracious. Therefore, he will rise up to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, there's the blessed be part. Now, prior to this passage, Isaiah has just gotten done indicting those in power in Israel for abusing their power, for sinning against God, and for screwing up their relationship with God. And at the end of that indictment, the prophet says, but God waits to be merciful to you, my people, who have totally blown it, who have oppressed those who are weak. There is a time coming when mercy and grace will be here. Blessed are those who wait for it. Now, on no list anywhere in any wisdom tradition are we counted as blessed if we have to wait for anything. What the prophet is trying to do is say to us, there is a time coming when grace will be here, when grace will come to you. Blessed are those who can be patient. Now, patience feels like a curse, not a blessing, doesn't it? Nobody wants to wait. Nobody wants to sit around and trust that God is going to fix everything that's wrong. So blessed are those who wait. There's a similar exchange that Jesus uses when you got some of you guys, I'm sure remember this. Uh, Jesus has been ministering for a while. John the Baptist has been captured, thrown into prison, right? And Jesus is out ministering, doing Jesus' thing, right? Like preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing people, right? And John the Baptist is sitting in prison. And he's like, what gives? I thought my cousin was going to like raise an army and solve all these problems, throw out the Romans. Why am I still rotting in prison? So John the Baptist sends one of his followers to Jesus, and the follower shows up to Jesus and says, hey, John sent me. You know your cousin who's in jail? He wants to know what gives. Like, are are you the Messiah or not? Jesus says, go back and tell him, the lame walk, the blind see, the prisoners have been set free. And then he ends with a beatitude. He said, blessed are those who do not stumble over me. You see, it's so easy to stumble over Jesus. 
Because Jesus comes and doesn't do what we wanted. Jesus comes and doesn't do what we expected. And so we're like, Jesus, what gives? I thought you were going to make it all better. Jesus says, just like Isaiah, blessed are those who do not stumble over me. See, I think the reason we misunderstand the Beatitudes is not because they're hard to understand. I think we miss them because we don't want to hear what Jesus is saying. You know, I used to be, uh, used to work at a large social service agency here in San Diego County. Um, worked there for about four years, big social services agency. One of my jobs, among other things, was to connect with volunteers, recruit volunteers in the community, that sort of thing. And so I'd often show up at the different locations for this social service agency, and I'd visit with the volunteers. And one of my favorite volunteers to visit with was an old woman in her 80s named Jillian. Jillian worked at one of the service centers here in Oceanside. And when I would show up, Jillian was one of those volunteers who, like, she wasn't getting paid to be there, but, man, she was the queen bee in that place. She ran that place. You know what I mean? She was there like three days a week, eight hours a day, sitting at her cubicle, helping to process people who are struggling and poor and help them connect with the resources they needed. She was basically a volunteer social worker. Uh, old, fiery woman, I think in her early 80s, I would guess. And I'd show up, and every time I'd come in, she'd say, Jason, sit down. She'd make me sit at her cubicle. And then she would proceed to interrogate me, like, what's going on at the home office? You know, why is this stupid decision being made? Why is that stupid decision being made? You know, she would, like, grill me, you know, and I would be responsive to her questions because it felt like she was my boss. One day she said, uh, kind of out of the blue, she said, where do you live? I said, actually, I just live right up the street, uh, right up here in Fire Mountain because the service center was right at the base where we live, which is in Fire Mountain. I said, yeah, we live right up the street in Fire Mountain. She said, oh, I love that neighborhood. She said, you know, back in the 50s, my husband and I tried to buy a house in that neighborhood, but they wouldn't let us. Because Jillian and her husband are black. And that was the first time I came to understand about redlining. Now, maybe you know about redlining. Redlining was a policy in the United States and Canada back in the 50s and 60s where banks and savings and loans wouldn't loan to black families if they wanted to buy in certain neighborhoods. The insurance companies wouldn't insure them if they wanted to live in certain neighborhoods. People wouldn't lend to businesses in certain neighborhoods. It was actually a systematic policy of making sure that black families and families of color didn't live in the same neighborhoods as white families. To make sure that white color families had their own neighborhoods with the best possible conditions that were separated from other kinds of people. This is, of course, a, a consequence of racism in the United States. I don't know if you know this, but we have a race problem in the United States. And it is the consequence of the fact that for 400 years, if you're a black person in this country, then you are subject to all kinds of injustices, not just slavery, 
but segregation, systematic oppression, lynchings, miseducation laws. Redlining was just sort of the latest manifestation of that racism that runs through our nation. Now imagine, if you could, if a leader arose in the United States today who said that they were going to right all of the historical wrongs and injustices that this country had committed over the past 400 years against people of color. Alex shared with me this morning an article that was in the New York Times last week. Uh, There's a seminary in Virginia called Virginia Theological Seminary, a seminary in Virginia that was built on slave labor. They actually had a slave quarters on campus, and many of the buildings there were built by slaves. And one of the reasons why Virginia Theological Seminary thrived in the first 30 years of its existence was because they took advantage of the slave labor that was available to them. And so just recently, Virginia Theological Seminary has decided that it will create its own reparations fund. They've put $1.7 million in a fund, and they're hoping to grow that fund so that they can do things like provide for the basic needs of the ancestors of slaves in their area. They can provide for tuition and housing for the ancestors of slaves in their area. This is just their attempt to try to right that historical wrong in their institution. And and I'm, I'm all for that. Now, just imagine if a national leader arose in the United States who said, that they were going to right all of the racial wrongs in this country. And when they started to speak, what they said was something along the lines of, blessed are those of you who are black, for your vindication is coming. Blessed are those who are ancestors lived in chains, for you will finally be free. Blessed are those who are discriminated against, for you shall be favored among all people. That's really what the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 are. It's not a list of spiritual virtues. It is a prophetic declaration that those who have been cursed, those who have been oppressed, those who have been wronged are now about to enter into their liberation because the Spirit of God is upon us to bring good news to the poor, the recovery of sight for the blind, and freedom for the captive. Now, I think we don't hear it that way for a bunch of reasons. And one of those reasons is because, frankly, most of us in this room have never really been oppressed. Most of us in this room don't know what it's like to face that kind of systemic, total, dehumanizing evil. Some of you do, but most of us don't. And those of us who don't know what that's like don't want Jesus to be saying that. You know, Luke announced a moment ago that 
on October 5th, there's going to be a meeting at St. John Missionary Baptist Church, and that our congressman, Mike Levin, will be there to hear from people about what we think needs to be done. And I would just like to point this out to you, that St. John Missionary Baptist Church is an historically black congregation in this community, number one. Number two, their main concern is lack of affordable housing for their own congregants who have historically been subject to racist laws and policies like redlining and have been denied access to build genuine wealth and well-being for themselves because of those laws. You know, the very best way for any American to build a life for themselves and have access to the resources they need is home ownership. And the third thing I want you to know is that Jillian, the woman that I told you about a moment ago, who her and her husband were denied the opportunity to buy a home in my neighborhood in the 1950s, that's her church. That's her church. It's a church full of people who have been denied access to the things that they need. So you better believe that I'm going to take my fair-skinned body over there and do whatever I can to advocate for that community. Because that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It doesn't just mean to be willing to deal with your personal sins. It means to enter into the tradition of the Beatitudes that declares that those who have been cursed now have the opportunity to be set free by the Spirit of God. And I think we don't hear that because we don't want to. Because it might mean I have to give up a Saturday morning and go over to St. John Missionary Baptist Church and give my voice to those who will benefit from a change of laws even if I won't. I'm not saying that to like guilt or shame any of you into showing up on October 5th. I'm not. What I am saying is that to be a follower of Christ means to step into those kinds of opportunities. Whatever it might be for you or for me, it might be different. But Jesus didn't just come to forgive us of our personal sins. Jesus didn't just come to be our guru so that we can have a wise life. Jesus came to flip the tables of power on behalf of those who are in need.